You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Colonel Perez, thank you for coming to talk to us today. Um, Absolutely. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. All right, so first and foremost, if you can give me a quick rundown on who you are and sort of what your experience is. Okay, so this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alex Poncho Perez Cruz. I'm an armor officer. Uh, uh, I became an officer in 2000, graduated from Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. Mouthful. Uh, I... Uh, I was deployed as a lieutenant twice to Kuwait and Iraq. I was in the invasion of Iraq as a exo of a tank company, went back to Iraq as a mint team leader, went back to Iraq as a company commander during the surge. And then um, since then I've been number of units, including TRADOC, 4th ID. I uh, was in a CAV squadron where I, I was the S3 twice, once to RC East and once to RC South, RC East. Uh, uh, captain uh, Moraldi was my, uh, at the time captain, now major, yep. was my AS3. We have a lot of stories there. Do. And uh, then I went to School of Advanced Military Studies. Since then, I've done a lot of theater security cooperation in North America. And now I'm an interagency fellow at the Office of Policy for the Home Department of Homeland Security, where I serve as a strategist. And uh, next, I'll be a battalion commander of 164 Armor down in 3rd ID. All right. Um, so what I, want, what I want to do initially is we're going to talk a couple different stories uh, on the podcast today. And, um, and the first one we're going to lead off with is one you talked about uh, in Iraq. In, in OIF-1, you're a tank company XO. Um, can you kind of explain what the, what the situation was as just background, and then we can kind of go into the, yeah. the actual invasion itself? So, so as the XO, I deployed for a total of, I think it was 13 months total, between two deployments with only like about 90 days between the two deployments. So really it's the same equipment. We drew from the Army pre-positioned stock at, in Kuwait. Mm -hmm. We put our names on them. We trained for seven months in Kuwait as part of Operation Desert Spring. Um, and then when we sort of knew we were going to invade or had the possibility of invading, we went back. Same equipment. And then we lived in an alfalfa in the middle of the Udari Desert. Part of our daily living was uh, ration cycle, Things are mon mundane, ration cycle, um, maintenance of equipment. As an XO, you have to understand maintenance of equipment at all times. You also have to understand what the mission is for the boss because if something happens to your company commander, 
you're in charge. You mm -hmm. are the company commander. So at all times, I'd always be with the supporting element as we went up through the attack so that if something happens, I get to take over the mission. Um, but the most important thing was keeping the, the, the vehicles up and running and the weapons. And when we're talking vehicles as a company XO, I had a platoon of ADA, three platoons of tank, one platoon of engineer equipment. Um, and that's a vast, large amount of, of uh, class nine and class eight and mm -hmm. class uh, three. So, you know, everything from fuel to all your medical supplies to your major equipment to uh, all your parts. So a lot of stuff there to be able to um, keep maintained and moving. So that, that's a huge part of it. Yeah, well, and the idea is, right, that that's the thing that enables you to do your job, right? I mean, if you don't have a functioning tank, you guys aren't useless necessarily, but you're... Pretty pretty much. You're, <laughs> you're so a lot less useful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's true. And then that, so that's part of it is combat readiness. So, you know, the, the number one priority for the Army is readiness. So what does readiness mean? It means people, right? It means training. What level of training are your troops at, right? So before you deploy... You're all going to shoot your tank and qualify on your tank, and then you're going to shoot as a platoon and qualify as a platoon, and then you're going to do some type of live fire slash maneuver exercise as a company. But if your vehicles do not work, you cannot do your mission. So it it always you were always a lot more tired when it was time to clean your vehicles than when you were actually training. Mm -hmm. But you had to force, and it's a level of discipline that it's hard to explain because I remember as a cadet not understanding it. And I remember after going out to the field and coming back, for the first time I had so much fun shooting the tanks. And that first time that I had to do maintenance where it was sun up to sundown maintenance for three weeks straight, doing uh, annual services on a tank where you pull the engine out, you clean everything, you change the oils, you do everything. You change one side of track and move it to the other side, you change the other side of track, you change every track pad, you clean the tank to make it immaculate, and then you bore scope and pull over, which means you're going to check, see if the actual uh, mechanism of, of the cannon works. Mm -hmm. That is a lot of hard work. And it's worth it when you have to shoot the tank and when you have to be in combat in a tank. But it, that is the understanding of what is important as an armor and a mechanized infantry officer. So you do all this preparation, you make sure everything's functioning in Kuwait after you land on that, that prepo fleet. What happened after you got the mission to, hey, we're actually gonna go invade? What, what kind of transpired from there? So over a period of a couple of weeks prior to, it was March 21st, 2003 when we actually invaded, um, probably two weeks prior to that, end of February through early March, we did everything from rehearse the breach of a, of a minefield in Mop 4 with all of our equipment. I remember that's the first time I'd actually been inside a completely sealed tank with live ammunition to include live Sabos. They actually depleted uranium Sabos mm -hmm. in the breach for, f I think, five or six hours straight with a mask on. Um, the inside of a tank actually has at different atmospheres because mm -hmm. it pressurizes. Um, that feeling is different than just training on a normal day. Um, so did that. We did a longer road march to test out all our equipment, mm -hmm. longer being like an eight-hour road march in a tank um, and all your equipment to ensure that we knew how to actually move in serials all the way in. Yeah. Then we rehearsed everything on, on map train boards. Um, with we, we linked up with a CIA and we linked up with the SF teams. 
We linked up with our Apache. We linked up with the with the the scout recon troop that was going to mm -hmm. be in front of us. We were the second tank to cross the berm into Iraq for the entire division, and um, so there's a lot of coordination to be the second. Or actually, we were yeah we were the second tank company to move in, um, and uh, then after that happened, um, basically we maneuvered all the way to the uh, UN demilitarized you know, border between Kuwait and Iraq. Mm -hmm. The berms have been cut and we actually listened on the radio, uh, Colin Powell and the president say that, you know, they had met the criteria and they were gonna go ahead and go. So we knew when every missile was gonna be shot and then how we were gonna go cross the berm. So what was the, what was the initial objective for your company in that, in that first push? So during the first push, our initial objective was going to uh, Talil Air Base. Now it's Talil Air Base. Back then it was Talil Air Base, but it was, you know, the Iraqis owned it. Mm -hmm. So we, we did a deliberate attack at Talil Air Base. It was ourselves, 269 armor and 115 infantry. Uh, we set up the support by fire. 115 infantry was the assault element. Mm -hmm. So uh, we also had the... MBC Fox vehicle. Mm -hmm. So my company led in to set up the sport by fire, but it, a part of our sport by fire, which actually I was next to the Fox vehicles as the company XO, I had to sort of corral them, make sure they didn't go in the wrong place so they can take samples of soil, sample the air, and say that there was no uh, chemical weapons in that area. So what did, as support by fire, I mean, what does that kind of mean for a, for a tank company, right? Because we, especially at a, at a Junior officer level, you see that as like your, like your light infantry weapon squad laying down. What does that, what does that mean as, so imagine, a, as a tank company? <laughs> so imagine being the light weapons, uh, well, heavy weapons section for, for a company, but at the, at, at the sort of a grander level. So if a brigade-sized element, we were setting the support by fire to suppress, engage, and destroy all of the combat vehicles that were on and around guarding Talil Air Base. Mm -hmm. Once we did that, and we could breach uh, the wire into Talil Air Base. 115 Infantry basically assaulted, and um, at that point they had to secure, and actually they were there to uh, occupy. So going from tactical task of secure, which you can do with just direct and indirect fire, mm -hmm. versus actually owning the space, uh, which is the tactical term of sort of seize. So we seized Talil Air Base, and then the following morning we did a relief in place with uh, Marines. So in that sort of support by fire role, I mean, were there lots of targets who engaged? Did, was there anybody at Talila Air Base when you got there, or was it was it a big fight to get onto the base? So it, to my surprise, um, it was uh, a smaller fight. We saw some uh, some BMP recon vehicles in and around. Uh, we engaged those. We engaged some static targets. It seemed like a lot of the the um, the Iraqi army had already like left their vehicle static there. Um, we destroyed a lot of weapons that were that were that we found everything from RPGs to uh, BMPs to BTRMs and um, once we knew that at least we had no enemy in the area and it was secure, we moved on. But the actual engagement, fire to fire, we didn't see much. And as we moved progressively into Baghdad, that was sort of the 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 theme. I think one night we did engage quite a few on uh, I think two nights after that, but other than that, it was it's very much one of those fights where you show up and the enemy's there, but they've either surrendered or they've gotten off their vehicles. So we we were able to destroy their vehicles and move on to the next objective. Um, and and the big fight after that was a lot of Fedayeen 
which is their sort of secretive special operations type units. They're all wearing all black. I got engaged by a RPG personally where it actually went right between the uh, the antennas and I b- remember actually putting up the my two arms up as he did it and smiling because it was like a touchdown. But what are you going to do? You're going to sm- laugh instead of uh, cry when somebody engages you. We engaged back with 50 cal by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's so so as you progress up to Baghdad and and you know you're you're in contact obviously, but there's you know as I think most units sort of saw as they made that initial advance into into Iraq, there kind of wasn't as much resistance as there might have been otherwise. Where did you start to see that that fidayin, that kind of less conventional, maybe a little bit more sort of urban? fight was it in Baghdad once you guys got up there I mean was so that I would say that before short of that so we were outside of Kufa and we we're in a place called Al Kifl um, Iraq it was the night that everything went orange the mm-hmm. anybody who's seen any pictures of any of the like I think even the front cover of Thunder Run the, the book mm-hmm. shows like an orange tint um, all aircraft stopped flying we had a tank or a Bradley get destroyed uh, oh, as a tank from I think it was a one a three seven cav or div cav, so Alpha Company and Charlie Company had to go over a bridge near Talil or not Talil, Al Kifl, mm-hmm. and uh, Charlie Company went north. And during that attack, we saw a lot of dismount, um, dismounted activity, a lot of uh, RPGs. We we saw um, uh, some suicide bombs. We engaged quite a bit that night. A lot of uh, dismounted infantry all over the place. Um, that I, that was about a five to six day straight mission where we held the line there at at Al Kifl, waiting for the 101st to do a relief in place. Mm-hmm. The 101st had a couple of tanks with them from I think it was uh, Dakota. I think it was like 113 armor okay. w- that they were with. So we did an entire tank company with light infantry relief in place in contact. Um, and I remember after that holding that that area um and actually let will go back during that time we also had counter fire counter counter artillery fire mm-hmm. so i can say that was the first time i saw 155 artillery land on my position and when i say on my position i mean i actually saw the rounds impact like 10 meters from me splashing up i think their fuse was set wrong because they could have killed us but instead it landed and the 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 um ground came up at us um brigade main moved out we held the line uh we did counter fire destroyed their battery but it was it was one whatever the one one five nine or i guess the the russian version of one five five they're one five five equivalent um but yeah that was one where and I, i think that was actually the biggest mistake i made and i can actually say that that was my fault to this day i still believe i was my fault that we got hit because after five days i'm so focused on maintenance because again, even though I'm the second in command and that's that's the important job of being second in command, I had to think about things that other people weren't thinking about. And one of them was uh, the old tanks, you had to pull out V-pack wands, which is like air compressed air, mm-hmm. to clean the um, air filters of a tank because the tank will stop working without those working properly. Yeah. And I had my guys spread out. The only thing that I could say was I had them spread out, pull out their V-packs and start working. And I guess there was a uh, f- uh, fire sport um, officer, whatever, sergeant from the Iraqi army calling artillery on us. So I can say that, that was my fault. Not a single guy got hurt. No, actually one guy got hurt. He got, got a purple heart for a guy who got some shrapnel in his hand. And um, we might have lost some pants when a couple guys were maybe in the bushes um, 
doing their business during that time, which was kind of funny. <laughs> but um, other than that, uh, guys jumped back in the tank and we were pretty secure. So that was also part of the readiness piece is understanding what you do in indirect fire, what you do in direct fire. Mm -hmm. In indirect fire, you're jumping back in the tank because it's the only secure spot you have. Yeah. So I'm curious because there's a lot, a lot of stuff there. You know, you personally up to up to you know the point that you get to the berm kind of haven't been in a combat situation at all and, never and we as an army sort of haven't been in this sort of combat situation in 10-ish years yeah um so i'm curious what sort of the that initial experience was was like just for you personally and then you know, not seeing the big tank-on-tank -tank battle that maybe was expected out south of Baghdad and then progressing to this sort of close fight, slug-it-out thing that Iraq eventually kind of turned into for everybody, uh, what that experience was sort of like for you viscerally, kind of personally? So personally, um, I always say that the, f the funnest day of my career was the day that I got to drive a tank from Kuwait to Baghdad, and I say day, not like in one day, but the days, because to me that was what I thought being an armor officer was gonna be like. And I remember feeling that Rommel-like patent feeling of goggles on my helmet and a cigar and my M9 and wearing the, 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 the CVC um, and being a tanker. And then as time progresses and I deploy back to back to back to back back to Iraq and then Afghanistan, what being an armor officer is, is no longer armor infantry officer. We've now all maneuver officers. Um, I've done as many air assaults as any of my friends who are infantry. I've done as many combat patrols dismounted up a mountain in Nangahar and in Kandahar, or Kandahar and Nangahar province. Um, I've learned to engage the population, which used to be only, oh, the SF guys do that. Well, uh, you have to learn how to speak the languages, and not that I'm a perfect uh, Arabic speaker, but I shway, shway out of me a little bit, <laughs> and I can go in a room and build rapport. Um, I can, you know, go in and 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 really do care and, and actually want to learn and act like I'm learning and tell them, hey, look, I'm learning your culture too. That's part of that that piece that. It's complex, but by the way, at no point do you lie to yourself and say this is what it's about. Combat is about engage and destroy targets. So you can win a fight through engagement, but you always have to be prepared to secure your people and secure your men. I've had men die under, under my watch. It's not a fun experience, and that's that's a whole leadership we talked that forever on leadership, what it takes to lead men in combat, men and women in combat. And when one of them dies, understand that you have to go back into the fight the next day, mm -hmm. maybe the next hour, and you, and you have to understand what your mission is. But um, what's important about that is understanding that it's not, it's not one thing. It's not, if you're an armor officer, it's about being on a tank and doing gunnery. If you're an infantry officer, it's about going to ranger school and, and um, you know, living out of your uh, rucksack. Sure. You have to have the a complexity or the understanding of the complexity to be able to be sort of a code talker, understand that every situation is going to be totally different, but there are fundamentals you always have to stick to. Security being one of them. Mm -hmm. And I always mention security. I've, I don't know how many times I've mentioned security. <laughs> but security and then the principles of, of maneuver warfare, principles of combined arms maneuver. So you have to understand 
when to use indirect fire. You have to understand when to use reconnaissance. You have to understand that there are many types of reconnaissance. You have to understand the fundamentals of of movement from just one point to another point. It may be it may seem simple, but if something may happen in between, that will take you from movement to maneuver in a second. Right. So, I want to kind of transition a little bit because I think there's a there's a good segue here. You talked about how you know, the Iraqi army sort of dissolved as you were advancing, or they, they didn't materialize to begin with. Um, and then it became sort of that close fight. And, and to my knowledge, trying to remember some of, some of the stories that we've discussed before, I don't, you didn't lose anyone as an XO, did you? As an XO in our company, we didn't. We lost uh, two soldiers. Uh, uh, so PFC Pruitt and PFC Huxley. Uh, Pruitt was uh, one of our, uh, our, um, LMTV drivers during an attack on our brigade headquarters slash battalion headquarters at the oil ministry palace. Uh, we, we were engaged, and actually General Allen, former vice chief of staff of the United States Army, whose personal hero of mine was there, um, pulled out his 9 mil and was in the fight just like everybody else as mm -hmm. he was brigade commander. Um, so Huxley, or Pruitt died then, and on the way to that objective, which was within 24 hours, uh, Private Huxley, who's a engineer, sapper, in a in a 113 couple vehicles in front of me was hit with an RPG they're part of our engineer platoon mm -hmm. and I think in both instances uh, the one thing I can say is all about leadership and it's all about remaining calm and understanding that the mission must go on so you have to understand that you you love those soldiers but you have another 20 to 30 soldiers if you're a platoon leader and if you're the brigade commander you have the entire brigade so do the right thing. Try to get that. Try to get the soldier who's injured to get that golden hour. Try to get them the the medical attention they need, or do the do the things that need to be done as their KIA, but continue the mission. Yeah. So that and and that's exactly kind of what I want to talk about. Was you know I know from from conversations we've had in the past that you lost soldiers as part of that next deployment and as you know as part of the surge as a company commander. And I'm curious how how your experience in that first OIF one. Uh, sort of set of deployments changed and, and how different the situation was for you, both in terms of a leadership standpoint and, and threat and environment um, for that surge deployment, kind of what, what that experience was like as compared to your, your OIF-1 experience. So I would say that the, the difference is um, during OIF-1, it felt very linear. Mm -hmm. So we had to get to objective uh, non-Azaria, which is the Talil Air Base. And then we had to get to objective, I think it was like, uh, there were names after generals. I remember it was like Lee, Buford, and mm -hmm. um, Grant. And then we had to go to the objective, it was right after Thunder Run, um, or part of Thunder Run, when they when they were taking, when 1st Brigade was taking the, uh, the, the, uh, the airport, we did a, uh, a passage of lines in contact. And that's actually when Huxley died. And then we went and took objective like Patton and Rommel in northern part of Baghdad. And during those experiences, they were very linear and sort of things progressed to an end. Mm -hmm. And although it, it, everything sort of started happening again with, uh, with the insurgency, there seemed to be an end to that. And there seemed to be that objective. What I can say about the following deployment is every day 
was a continuation of the day prior. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems strange to say that, but we had a matrix of how many patrols we were going to do, how we are going to do patrols. Every platoon leader had their own sector that I gave them, their own zone, depending on whether it's defense or offense, going to those. Yep. But um, they would patrol certain areas for certain reasons. We do, we have named areas of interest, mm -hmm. would then become target areas of interest. Um, we were out collecting intel, but also doing DDR. Right. We were also doing governance. We'd go have a governance meeting. Um, so it was very complex in terms of the, the things we were doing. And the best way to s describe that is through the construct of, uh, of, the, of the lines of effort. Mm -hmm. So lines of effort are uh, conceptual versus lines of operations are linear on the ground. And the lines of effort, you can tell whether it's governance, security, and um, security assistance for the, for the Iraqi arm, whatever your three lines of four lines of operation, you have to do operations in all three of those, understanding that at any point it will become kinetic. So that's where, you know, sort of my, my understanding of the two, but at the same time there's some semblance of each one, or at least some, some similarity in both. So as you're going out and, and doing these patrols and your company is, is doing governance and doing all the stuff on your lines of effort, there's obviously the, the kinetic piece. How, how did you as a commander sort of balance emphasis, I guess, is kind of the best word I can come up with, between those two? And then the nature of sort of the, the kinetic threat you were dealing with, what kind of did it look like? I imagine it was, it was not an OIF-1 threat template that you were handling. So. No. So I think that the first thing is training for the soldiers. So if scout platoon and the tank platoon and infantry platoon understanding their main roles in life. So uh, engage and destroy your enemy is always part of your mission. You're always going to do that. Um, understanding the other pieces. Uh, first off, you have to have a command climate that has an open discussion, almost academic-like, where your lieutenants have to understand this is why we're doing uh, governance. Mm -hmm. Have lieutenants understand this is why we're doing DDR and why we want them to disarm and then uh, re reintegrate society. They have to under that, that understanding. We want them to make sure they have the understanding of why um, they're training the Afghan army or Iraqi army for that matter. Um, it, and that it's more important for them to get the victory, not you. Mm -hmm. But in all of that, the only reason we go out and do kinetic on a uh, very um, um, deliberate manner is to dr drop the violence. If we can drop the violence so it's easier for the Iraqis to go out and do their job, that's the reason you go out and, and do that. So it's, it's very deliberate in nature, mm -hmm. and a lot of it were going to be time-sensitive targets that we were getting intel from whatever source we are getting it, and we were able to capture uh, and then get more intel to go back out and do the same thing. And, and as it, what you're trying to do is incrementally drop the violence to sort of establish a good environment for the Iraqis to thrive. So, Do you feel like, as a, as a tank company commander, that this was a mission set you were prepared for? That, that you were sort of mentally ready to do, or is this something that, that felt weird weird and strange and, and uncomfortable? Uh, for me, that? I think every job I've had, I sort of, uh, one of my um, brigade commanders used to say that you're born for this day, so there's no challenge you'll have that you weren't prepared for. So whether you're 
you will get the experience you need that to that day and then you'll have to learn obviously in, in the job but between the NTCs and the homes uh, any, any type of home station training we had um, we had people come in for sort of academic weeks um, self-learning in the entire time what I'll say is that there's a lot of self-learning if you want to learn better Arabic you got to pick up Rosetta Stone you have to um, meet people who speak Arabic and try to speak some Arabic with them um, and then what I'll say specifically, maneuver warfare, every brigade and battalion in the, in the U.S. Army, Marines, is preparing to do that every mm. single day. So that part, we have sort of a, a, a way in which we prepare from going to, from team live fires all the way through company and maybe battalion live fires and or maneuver, that that will prepare you. The other pieces... Um, are going to be sort of specific to the missions that you're doing, and there are ways to get at it. There's a lot of resources. You also have to reach out to other people who've done it before mm -hmm. in order to get some of those resources to be able to better prepare. But I think we were very well prepared, at least starting infantry division when I was there. Um, the last thing I want to touch on before we kind of wrap up here is you already sort of mentioned it a little bit, and, you know, I'm always... I always try and be careful to ask these sort of questions when it comes up. Um, but you talked about losing losing soldiers um, and kind of what leadership wise we we need to think about when when that happens. If if you would, um, as a company commander, can you kind of talk about one? We'll just pick you know one of the soldiers that you lost and sort of describe what the what the impact was and and how you went about mitigating some of the potential you know pitfalls of of having something like that happen? So, um, overall I had uh, several incidents uh, throughout my time in Iraq and lost platoon leaders. One platoon leader I lost, uh, he lost uh, his leg and then went home and was he's been successful, awesome, great, great guy. And then I had another platoon leader I lost from an IED. And um, he was, he was, sort of my shining star in, in a lot of ways. Um, we gave him the scout platoon leader after he was a, com a platoon leader the company, John Eads. He's actually a West Point grad. Uh, his brother, Josh, is in, in, um, also an armor officer right now, West Point grad. His other brother's West Point grad. Um, John died. Everyone loved John. Mm -hmm. The night prior, he and I had stayed up all night talking until like 4 or 5 in the morning. And he was coming in uh, from the FOB to do a right seat ride with the, with the old scout platoon leader and when they get hit with an ID. And for me, it was personally hard because I can say that I love John. John mm -hmm. was, you know, he was one of my original platoon leaders I had. And to, for him, to see him get scout platoon was awesome. Um, the, the company XL was his best friend. Um, so he also, one of, you know, he and I are still tight to this day. It was hard personally, and after about some personal grieving, um, thinking about his wife having a, you know, I called his wife, and I remember telling his wife, oh, she, I'll take care of him. That was the hardest thing for me to think is I'm going to take care of him, yet I didn't take care of him because he ended up dying. So it was personally hard. Um, I, every day that's, the, there hasn't been a day that's passed that I don't ask myself what I could have done that day to change that. But I've come to grips myself that the enemy got a vote that night when John and Doug came back in from uh, the FOB to go sleep at the COP. And 
the enemy got, you know, that they, they were able to engage and, and do their job, their mission. We ended up capturing the people that did it. We ended up capturing and engaging that night. Some people got saved that day. We, we I think uh, we had two Silver Star recipients from that, that fight. Um, looking back on it, I coordinated the QRF to go out there. We did the best uh, that we could to try to save John, to try to save the other guys. Mm-hmm. Two of the guys that also got hit all lived and did fine afterwards. Um, but so managing that was both personally difficult, then it was difficult for the company because he was loved across the board. So the main thing was, for me as a leader, was almost stopping the grieving process Mm -hmm. and later on dealing with my own personal grief to lead the company to go back on patrol. So the company had to go back on patrol the next day. I had to put John back on, I had to put John and say goodbye to him on a final flight with the chaplain. And that was hard. Mm -hmm. But the platoon that took me to do that, they knew John very well and it was basically insulating myself from my own personal feelings to lead the company because a hundred other people needed me for the rest of that deployment. And it, it actually, there was a lot of hard uh, things that I went through personally to get through that grief. And I, you know, I say that there's some of it's still there because I, again, I always blame myself for, for what happened to John, but it's, that's personal nature of that. Mm-hmm. And I can say, I didn't know what, uh, what, losing somebody in combat wasn't and not until that day but during that deployment because i lost uh several good friends and part of that was i was a platoon leader in the same company i commanded Mm -hmm. which is one of the best things ever and one of the hardest things ever being a platoon leader knowing your guys to the point where the privates are now the sergeants and then seeing your guys die is the hardest thing for me to have lived through my entire life but it was a great leadership challenge because it caused um it allowed me to um, lead them from a place of heart, of loving them, but loving them in a tough love where they need to train, do the right thing, security, and do the other fundamentals while still accomplishing the mission, so. Yeah, I, again, I, I, I always struggle with whether I'm gonna ask, ask questions about that sort of thing, because you know, in, in my experience losing guys, it's exactly that, it's kind of, you know, there's, there's such an element of, of just, personal care, individual care for those people and that and that person that it's it's hard to kind of describe what it's like to lose that person and then still have to go out and, and do your job, not just for you, but for everybody else in the in the platoon or the company or whatever it is. So um, so I appreciate you fielding that question. Um, no, absolutely. So that's that's uh, kind of it. I appreciate you talking to us. Absolutely. Um, I love it. Hopefully yeah. uh, we'll be able to do more engagements like this. This is great. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.